0: Lord, we thank you for the victory we have in your name, Jesus. Lord, that we can stand in the promise. Lord, that we have salvation in your name and anchor in the soul, God, steadfast and true. Lord, so we rejoice in you. We rejoice in your name, Jesus. And we say only you are worthy this morning, worthy of our worship and our praise, God. Lord, we just ask for hearts to be open to you today. Hearts open to see you, the King of glory that you would enter in this morning. So we say, come, have your way in us today. Jesus, the cornerstone is the Lord of all this morning. We love you today. We love you. And everybody said, amen, 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 amen. amen. Well, thank you for worshiping this morning. Would you just find someone next to you and maybe greet them today?
1: winter seems to have overcome as death steals all the life from our leaves. In a little while you will see me no more, he says. John 16, 16. The followers of Jesus are left in despair for three long, dark days. But spring comes with a vengeance and what was stolen flourishes in beauty. After a little while, you will see me again, he says. John 16, 16. The followers of Jesus find a fountain of joy as the sun rose on Sunday. I used to live in winter. Guilt and despair had their way with me. Death stole all of the life from my dreams. But I saw him too after a little while. And spring had its way with me
2: Sunday right here at Christian Renewal Church. We are so excited and expectant and we will have some invite cards. We know that um Easter Sunday might be one of the only Sundays that we can get a family member or that the neighbor or a coworker to come with us to church and we're but we're believing that God is going to do something really special on Easter Sunday some life-changing. Yeah, amen. Amen. So if you would be uh just praying with us and partnering with us as we um are hopeful for um as we celebrate the death resurrection of Jesus. We um, have a couple of things that we wanted to make sure that you were in the loop. Um, We also wanted to say hello and welcome to anybody watching online. We are so glad you joined with us this morning. Uh, this past week was a busy week for us. We had on Wednesday our family food truck night, which was an incredible time. We, uh, yeah, we got some good food, some good fellowship, good music. We also on Saturday our ladies met and had a women's conference, which was a wonderful time as well. So we were, we were having a lot of things going on here at Christian Renewal. And, um, if you are looking to get plugged in or informed about current events or things in the future, be sure to subscribe to our weekly email. We send that out every Tuesday, um, with current events and things going on here at the church, you can do that online or you can fill out a blue Connect Here card and um, drop that off in the giving kiosk. Next Steps. Next Steps is our um, class that you can attend. Three sessions. You can go in any order. Session one is today. I'll actually be back in the guest lounge. We'd love to meet you if this is your first time here. Or if you're looking to um, get to know more about who we are, our doctrinal beliefs, a statement of faith, and as well as um, just figuring out how you can plug in here to the body here at Christian Renewal Church, we'd love for you to attend that. It's right after service, 1115, in the guest lounge. And we are now going to take our tithes and offerings, so let's pray over our tithes and offerings, and then we're going to jump into the word this morning. Well, Father, we just come before you, and we thank you for your spirit. We thank you and honor you for, for what you're doing in our midst. We thank you for, um, for this family, for this church family, for every single person that's sitting in this room we just pray, Father, that as you're here with us, meeting with us right now, we pray and open up our hearts to receive everything that you have for us, shape us, mold us, change us, make us more like you. And Father, as we prepare our tithes and offerings, we just continue to say that this is just our declaration of love for you first and foremost, that um, we we know that we cannot serve both money and you and so father we just submit to you and say wholeheartedly that you have our hearts and lord we pray that you would use what's given today to extend um, far, far beyond these walls to accomplish the mission to see this community come to be moved into an encounter with you Father, we know that in meeting you and in one moment life itself can change. That um Father, that there's true joy found in your presence, that there's life found um in, in meeting you face to face. And so, Father, this morning we are praying and believing as we give this morning that somebody um will come to know you and come to see you rightly and completely be different. Um and so, Father, we just pray for um the gospel to be Preached beyond these walls for our community be completely um, and radically changed by the by the good news of the gospel. And so we're just praying for this, believing this, and Father, we just pray that you would bless every single gift and giver. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.
3: Good morning, everybody. Congratulations on getting out of bed on this rainy day. I told the church earlier, I literally have coffee spilled all over my notes this morning, so i let you know how today's going so far. <laughs> Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. We're so thankful for your presence. Lord, as we study your word, we believe it to be God-breathed, God-inspired, and Holy Spirit, we believe you to speak through it. And so this is something we do, not flippantly, Lord, but this is something we do with great reverence. This is a continuation of our worship. Father, it's our deepest desire that this community would be delivered from darkness, from the oppression of hell, from the oppression of the enemy, Lord. And so we we open up our hearts today and we say, use us, Lord. Make us vessels of your presence. Make us vessels of your glory. Lord, we've got family members. We've got brothers and sisters and co-workers who are bound in addiction, bound in depression, people who deeply need to know the joy that we found in Christ Jesus as Lord so, Lord, it's our prayer this morning that during this time, you would sharpen us, make us useful to the master of the house. I send Jesus' beautiful, majestic, lovely name we pray. Somebody say amen. 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 Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Well, I told you I've been reading a lot on the Wesleys lately, and this week I spent some time reading through Charles Wesley's diary. And um, you remember that John uh, Wesley is the older brother, John and Charles um, we're in Oxford. They had what was called the Holy Club. And the Holy Club, they, they fasted twice a week. They prayed together. They were on a regular Bible study together. That's how they got the name Methodist is because they were very methodical in their approach. And that was actually an insult at first. And, um, but one of the things that the Holy Club did was that they visited the prisoner on a regular basis. And particularly those who were in debtor's prison. Now, John and Charles Wesley's father was a minister, but he spent some time in what's called debtor's prison. The concept in our modern culture of filing bankruptcy didn't exist, and so if you had a debt and then you got cancer or sick or some kind of crisis happened in your life and you were unable to pay off the debt, um, you were thrown into debtor's prison, um, and which was really kind of an unethical um, scenario because in debtor's prison, you can't work or make money, and so your only hope was to sit there and hope that a friend or a family member came up with some cash to get you out, um, and so debtor's prison was really a problem, and It was Oglethorpe who was very passionate about um, revamping the idea of debtor's prison. And it was his idea to um, bring those who were in debtor's prison to Georgia... And to have a, a new colony and a new opportunity for those who were bound by debt, they could have a new shot at life, a new new land to try to grow crop um, and so when Oglethorpe had this past that he was going to start to bring those from debtors prison to colonies in Georgia, John and Charles Wesley, well particularly John Wesley, was all for it and what Oglethorpe needed to, for his first trip was he needed two pastors, um, and Charles was, was not an ordained pastor. Um, and so John comes to Charles and says, we're going to go to Georgia, and then Oglethorpe needs two pastors, so you and I are going to go. And Charles says, um, I'm not an ordained minister. He really didn't have any interest in going. He was a little bit like he'd like to just read his books at home. Um, and, and John said, that's okay, because I've already set up your ordination ceremony for this Sunday. Um, and so, uh, and Oglethorpe also needed a, a personal secretary. And so it actually comes to pass that Charles Wesley is um, General Oglethorpe's Personal secretary as they come to the states. And um, what Charles Wesley says in his diaries is that as things Began, um, He was holding prayer meetings a couple of times a day. He was holding worship services. Um, and uh, Oglethorpe would come to Charles's meetings. He was a part of the congregation. And so Charles is also serving as a secretary. And they have a pretty good relationship for the most part. And Charles said, but slowly he started to realize that he was falling out of Oglethorpe's favor quickly. And he really wasn't sure why. And at one point in his diary, he calls Oglethorpe his chief enemy. Um, and again, praying for him as an enemy. But he wasn't sure what was happening. And so... Charles wrote that one morning in their, in their little colony that they're establishing, Oglethorpe calls Charles out of his tent to come to his tent, and he accuses Charles of, um, he charges him with mutiny, sedition, and with stirring up the people to leave the colony. So apparently what had happened the night before is there was this group of people who had a meeting to essentially oppose Oglethorpe. They were going to leave the colony and start their own colony because they weren't happy with his leadership. But Charles didn't know anything about it or have anything to do with it. Um, and so Charles was really caught off guard. And so he asked Oglethorpe, he says, I'd like to confront my accuser in front of you. Now, that is a profoundly biblical idea. I've said this to you before. Our entire judicial system, which which allows the accused to defend themselves in front of the accuser, in front of a judge, um, the idea of not bringing a charge against someone without two witnesses was the biblical idea without evidence. You have to bring evidence to court. Those are all biblical concepts. And so when Charles is accused, he says, I'd like to confront my accuser in your presence. And so what happens is General Oglethorpe goes, he leaves the tent and he goes to get a man named Mr. Lawley. Now what Charles wrote in his diary was as soon as Oglethorpe left the room, um, he was a bit... Um, nervous, And he began to pray. He actually called for a friend to come pray with them. And he remembered Jesus' words that they'll persecute you. And they'll bring you before governors and rulers. And Oglethorpe was definitely that. And so um, Charles settled his heart. He reminded his heart of his integrity, of his truthfulness. And when Mr. Lawley came back with um, with Oglethorpe, um, the, Oglethorpe said, let's take a walk. And so the, now the three men, Lawley, his accuser, Charles Wesley and General Oglethorpe are walking through the woods together. And um, Charles said he noticed immediately that uh, Mr. Lawley, who he wrote in his diary, was a deceptive man anyway, was a bit nervous and kind of unsettled and was uncomfortable with this idea of having an outright open conversation. And so Charles just kept his peace. And um, Charles essentially uh, said Mr. Lawley have your way. Let's hear your accusation. And what Lawley did was he immediately started to say that Charles forced everyone to come to his prayer meetings. He's forcing people to pray. Now the accusations totally changed because the accusation originally was that Charles Wesley was causing an insurrection. And now he's talking about Charles's prayer meetings. And so Charles says, well, that's not true. I don't force anyone to pray. I don't even have the means to force anyone to pray. Um, that accusation, we can call any number of people from my congregation. No one would tell you that I forced them to pray. Um, And so eventually he gets out of Lawley this accusation that he's causing an insurrection. And and it was really clear that Lawley had no evidence, had um, nothing to his claim. It was just that, a claim. And so um, it becomes settled and um, Lawley says to Charles in front of Oglethorpe, well, now that that's all settled, I'm... I'm very glad to hear you had nothing to do with this insurrection because I've always known you to be a man of great honor and I've had great respect for you. And Oglethorpe said, Yeah, you had great respect for him last night when you caused him. You said he was the source of all this colony's problems and troubles. And what we see in this story here, you see a man of integrity, a man with truth, being accused by someone who is lying and manipulating And we see that truth will always have its way. Truth will always outlive the lie. Truth will always succeed in bringing light to darkness. We as people of truth will always um, have the unique advantage that, that deception always falls to truth. Truthfulness will be in our corner. As long as you're honest people. Because it's, it's not uncommon, and what we'll find today is Jesus rebuking the, the Pharisees. It's not uncommon for religious people to use deception as much as anyone else. And so truth is a... Um, Well, it's one of the things listed in the armor of God. It's the belt of truth. We see Charles Wesley girded up with truth. He has his integrity. He's sure that what he said and what he's done has been expressions of honesty. And so truth is a measure of spiritual warfare. It's one of our weapons that we are people of truth who stand against accusation based upon our own integrity. Truth is a weapon of spiritual warfare. But so is deception. Deception. And Jesus calls lies the native language of Satan. And so deception can also be a tool. It's it's a tool to twist the truth, to change, to, to paint things in a new light in order to arrive at your desired outcome. And just because you're a Christian or call yourself a Christian does not automatically imply that you're a person of honesty. And Christians can operate in deception just like anyone else. And if we are people of deception, then we are operating in darkness. Truth will always outshine the lie. As long as we are people of honesty. People of integrity. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read starting in verse 16. And we're going to find Jesus rebuking the Pharisees kind of in this line of thought. "'Woe to you, blind guides, who say, "'If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, "'but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, "'he is bound by his oath. "'You blind fools, for which is greater, "'the gold of the temple or the temple "'that made the gold sacred? "'And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, "'but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, "'he is bound by his oath. "'You blind men, for which is greater, "'the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred?' So whoever swears by altar swears by it and everything on it. Verse 21 is the puncher. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. First, we have a new insult introduced in our 23 woes that we'd like to take a little time to examine. Up to now, Jesus has called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Remember again that the term hypocrite was the description of a Greek play actor who was playing two different parts, and he was using a mask to delineate between which character he was playing. He was acting for the applause of the crowd, and so in a sense, Jesus up till now has called the Pharisees two-faced seekers of, 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 of praise, of applause. They're fake, essentially, is what Jesus says. Now, Jesus says they are blind guides and three times in our text today Jesus has called them blind not only hypocrites but your blind guides now Jesus has used this imagery before in Matthew chapter 15 verse 14 he says of the religious leaders they are blind guides and if the blind lead the blind won't both fall into a pit So Jesus is clearly referring to a type of spiritual blindness. They are unable to see, unable to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. They are bound up in their own ideologies and philosophies. They are unable to discern. They don't know the times they are living in. Luke chapter 12, verse 54 through 56. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus says, you're unaware. You are so spiritually dull that you're unaware who is standing before you. And so he laments over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 through 44. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Did not know the time of your visitation. These men love the position of leader. But they have no knowledge of the terrain where they claim to be leading you to. I, I, I meditated on, thought, thought about this passage, this line for like hours this week. And I, th- I think what is very clearly being said here is these men desired leadership, loved the position of leader. But you cannot lead people where you've never been. And 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 what they wanted was to be in a place of power, but they did not have a sincere desire and hunger to really know God. And you can't lead people to really know God if you don't know God yourself. And so what I've come to conclude this week is that the greatest characteristic of any man or woman of God that gives them the right to step into Christian leadership is hunger. The most important factor concerning spiritual leadership is that you have a sincere desire to really know God, to know him in the place of prayer, to know him in the place of secret study, quiet study in the word, to know him in the place of worship. If men or women have no personal intimate knowledge of God, they have no right or qualification to lead the church, to lead in the church. If we view leadership in the way in which the world views leadership. Secular, secular leadership largely establishes a leader based upon their intellect, their ability to organize, their ability to communicate. If you have these natural giftings, then you are elevated to a per- place of leadership and you are defined as a leader. You can have all of those natural giftings and lead people straight to hell. The requirement, the basis for spiritual leadership is not that you are the most articulate, the most intellectually gifted, the best at organizing. The requirement for spiritual leadership is that you know God in the place of prayer, in the secret place. We have enough spiritual leaders in our day who have all of the qualifications to lead Apple or any great organization, but they do not hunger and thirst after the person of Jesus Christ. Unless we hunger and thirst after the person of Jesus and really know the Holy Ghost in the secret place, we have no right to lead. Otherwise, we can only lead people in the direction of our own natural abilities and giftings and foresight, and we will lead them to a pit. The words of Jesus. And that's a challenge for you, and that's a challenge for me, that we spend our life on our faces first. Of course, we want the men and women who excel in leadership to possess some of the natural giftings that God gives uh, concerning the ability to organize. If, you're not, if you can't organize your laundry, there's no reason for you to be organizing anything else in the church, right? If the gift's not there, it ain't there, okay? But first, we must be people of hunger. First, we must be people who really desire to know God. Otherwise, all for naught. It's the same when you think of intellectual capacities. We're all all naturally gifted with certain IQs. Ability to store information and recite information, to build information into logical sequences in order to create arguments. Some of us are gifted in a way more so than others intellectually, but you can have all the intellectual gifting the highest IQ in the world, but that does not mean you're a person of wisdom because wisdom is only found in the secret place in communion with God. We need the wisdom of the Lord. Now, we've explored that. The rebuke this morning is that the scribes and Pharisees teach that an oath made by the temple is meaningless. But if you swear by the gold that has been placed on the altar of the temple, then the oath is binding. First, Jesus addresses the obvious. Pharisees honor the gold of the temple more than the altar which makes the gold sacred. In other words, the gold before it was brought in the temple was just gold, but when it was placed on the altar in the temple of the Lord, then it became sacred. But the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they loved gold more than they loved the sacred glory of God that dwelled in the temple. And again, the kickers in verse 21, where Jesus says, "If you swear by the temple, you swear." By him who dwells in it. They've actually honored gold, called Corbin in the day, gifts, more than they've honored and revered the glory of the Lord that was intended to dwell in the temple. And here, we just stumble into an observation that I think it would be meaningful to chew on just for a second. The religious leaders of the day did not carry a real reverence for the presence of God, for the glory of God, for the manifestation of the person of the Holy Spirit in the temple. Do we carry a reverence for the presence of God or are we more caught up in things and the gift of men and nice worship and funny stories? Or are we really bound in the deepest places of our hearts by a reverence for God's very manifest glory? When we step into this place on a Sunday morning, is it about someone singing your favorite song or is it God is in this place and my heart is desperate to meet with him? Is that where we are? Because I'm concerned that Christianity largely in the West is much more infatuated with lights and music and entertainment than we are with the glory and the presence of the risen Jesus Christ. Do we really love Him? Are we really longing for Him? Do we really revere His glory? And then you stumble into the obvious New Testament theological construct in which Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Lord? So the temple is destroyed in the year AD 70, and and Paul now brings the the imagery of the temple and places it upon your body, that what made the temple holy was that the glory of God rested upon it. And then he said, now don't you realize that the Spirit has filled, He dwells, he, He saturates your inner man, your body is actually the temple of the Holy Ghost, and everywhere you go, you carry Him with you? And so many times in the West today, that passage is referenced in 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 an attempt to teach us that we need to have healthy diets and we need to exercise. We need to honor our body and take care of the temple. And, And maybe that's an appropriate teaching, but that's clearly not the point of what Paul's saying. What Paul said is he's talking to them about sexual immorality. Don't you know that when you unite yourself with a prostitute, you've drugged the Holy Spirit in the middle of that? In other words, don't you know when you cuss down an employee that you drug the Holy Spirit in the middle of that conversation? Don't you know that when you're in a conversation with your wife and you're talking to her in a disrespectful way, in a disrespectful tone, that the very Spirit of God is in the middle of that? Don't you know that every situation you step into, you carry the very glory of the resurrected Jesus, the very glory of the omnipotent God? Don't you know And do you have any real reverence for that truth, for that fact? Do we carry a deep respect and an awareness that the Spirit of God fills us and rests upon us? Do we honor Him in our speech? Do we honor Him in the things we watch and listen to? Are we very aware that the Spirit walks with me daily? So the first rebuke is this, you love gold, love money, you don't love my glory. You don't love the presence of God. Second, we find again the concept of oaths, swearing. We should remember immediately from Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, Jesus says. There was clearly a culture of offering oaths or swearing in order to bring weight and validity to the word of an individual. And so imagine someone making a business transaction. Tomorrow I will be here. I will sell you this product for this price. I swear by the gold of the temple. But if you swore by the altar and it rained tomorrow or you got a better price somewhere else, you were allowed to Walk away from your word. Oaths, the idea of swearing, biblically speaking, is holy and covenantal. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 for me just for a moment. This is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. For people swear by by something greater than themselves. And in all the disputes, an oath is the final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that is the Abraham's children, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The author of Hebrews said that God, he encouraged the children of Abraham by two things. One, my promise to you will be fulfilled because I can't lie. Second, I give you an oath by my own name. So oaths are holy things. They are irrevocable commitments that should be honored. We take oaths Vows on the day of our wedding. We vow to love and serve our spouse till death does us part. That oath is intended to reflect God's oath to Abraham that he will bless his children with an inheritance forever. The concept of giving an oath, it reflects the very nature and character of God as the promise keeper. Oaths promises are holy and sacred to the heart of God. When he says to Abraham, your children will not be numbered. When he says to Eve, the heel of your seed will crush the head of the serpent. He intends to fulfill every promise that flows from his lips. Odes are holy to God Fulfilling your word is a uniquely holy thing that reflects the very nature of God. When you put your hand on a Bible in the court of law and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you are taking an oath that I will, in complete honesty, reflect God's character in the things that I say to you. And if you are dishonest in the making of that oath, you insult the very nature of God as the ultimate promise keeper. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return... There but water the earth, they make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God speaks, when God gives his word... His entire character is committed. His entire character is on the line. He puts all of himself into his word. We say a man is only as good as his word. We see the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the beauty of God in his commitment to fulfill every word which he has spoken. Theologically speaking, God is the very essence of truth. To know God is to know truthfulness. Outside of God, there is no truth. All truth is founded upon his own character. When you are a person of truth, you then are operating within a correct alignment with the character of your creator. When you are a person of deception, you align yourself with the character of your accuser. And if God calls us to be holy, this is his command, that you would be holy as I am holy He is calling you to live in light of the fact that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. What that means is that in Jesus, every promise that God gave to Israel was fulfilled, will be fulfilled at his return. When God said to you, you will have new life. Any man in Christ Jesus is a new creation. Did God fulfill the promise or didn't he? When God said that we'll have joy in the fountains of living water that spring up from within us to the person of the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled that word. When God said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, He fulfilled that word. When God said, I won't leave you as orphans, but I'll send the Spirit in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, He fulfilled that word. Every time God makes a promise to His people, you can be sure that the thing will come to pass. Are you like him in that way or aren't you? That's very much the emphasis of what's being taught today. It is our job as his people to look upon his glory and his character and to reflect that glory and character to the earth. Therefore, when we give a yes or when we give a no, we need to fulfill the word we've given. Your work ethic... Is a reflection of whether or not you've really um, gazed upon the glory of God. If you say, I'm gonna be there, I'll serve you, if you say to someone at the altar, I will love and serve you for life, you better mean what you say. When you get in a dispute, scripturally speaking, bearing false witness or bringing false testimony is a great sin. In a dispute, believers are not allowed to twist and manipulate truth to gain their desired outcome. You are required of the scripture to be honest. and That means to own your own failure sometimes. Jesus says, when you offer your word lightly, flippantly, and you offer it knowing that you may not fulfill it, you insult the very character of God. I should remember that Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your word be meaningful. Mean what you say and say what you mean. We're we're not to be people twist and manipulate and you squirm out of responsibility, who say, I'll be here to help you with this and then squirm out of the thing. You remember James, um, James saying that to make commitments um, to say, uh, tomorrow I'm going to go to this city or tomorrow I'm going to make that sale. Um, he said, to do that without acknowledging that you're not in control of the weather or your life or to, to make these big commitments without acknowledging that you can't control all the factors is evil. And he said, so rather you should say, tomorrow I will go to so and so God willing in other words if there's a hurricane tomorrow I ain't going to be there so James said do you understand that I'm trying to make you hear the significance of your words biblically James said be wise in what you say add that God willing at the end because you're not in control let me graze by one more thing as we get ready to close worship team y'all can go ahead and make your way The last thing happening in our passage is this. Jesus says, whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And here Jesus is alluding to judgment. He's saying, when you swear by heaven and you intend to to squirm out of your word, you're swearing by the God of heaven who sits on the throne that you're going to stand before sooner or later. He's saying, you will stand before me And that slides us into Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. By your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. We need to take Jesus' instruction here seriously. God has not called us to be a people who are flippant with our word. If we are flippant with our word, why would our culture believe us when we tell them about the beauty of the gospel? They need to know us as people who are truthful. So that when I share my testimony and I say I was in depression and suicidal and bound in sin and bitter and God pulled me out of that muck and God transformed my life and gave me real joy and life. They need to believe that what I'm saying is true and not that I'm manipulating and twisting the truth in order to convert them to my religious affiliations. Your character, it it means a lot when it comes to your testimony and your ability to win your neighbor. Your kids need to know you as a person of truth so that when you say God loves you, they believe it. Our character matters. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So in conclusion, we remember today that deceit is the instrument of Satan. Deception is hell's game truthfulness honesty finds its very foundation in the character of god in his own essence we want to be people of integrity and by doing so we testify to the integrity of our father who never allows one promise to go unfulfilled who never speaks a word that falls flatly if god says it it's yes and amen Being a person of honesty and integrity and character, it is a part of your worship. And it's a part of revering the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. It matters. It matters. In your business deals, it matters. When you speak to your spouse, you make a promise to your kids, it matters. Your word has got to matter. You guys hear me? Okay, go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. Let me say first that if you've never um, received Jesus as your Lord, today can be that day. If you wanna go ahead and come, altar team, if you wanna come. Your sins from yesterday, your sexual sins, theft, bitterness, lying, stealing, lack of integrity. None of those things matter this morning. All that matters is whether or not you'll receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. All of the punishment that you deserve for your guilty life has been born on the cross of Calvary. Meaning in eternity, you will never experience punishment for your sins because Jesus experienced them for you. You can leave here spotless is what the scripture says. White as snow, sure that you will never experience the retribution for your sin because Jesus experienced for you. Yesterday's sins don't matter. This morning matters. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. Will you receive or not? You walk out of here without giving your life to Jesus, your guilt's still on your head. And it ain't on me because I'm offering it. Your guilt's on your head. Get on your face. Make him Lord, and his blood will wash you white as snow. There will be no eternal punishment. You will receive all of the joy and the pleasure that Christ Jesus himself deserved. Today's your day. I want to tell you not to leave this place without giving your life to Jesus. Second, I want to say, if you feel stale, Believers, if, if you'd say, man, I'm not hungry. I want to be hungry, but I'm not hungry. I'm stale. I want to ask you to come to the altar this morning and we're going to pray that God would give us a fresh desire for the presence of the Lord. There are times where I need God to intervene. I need him to give me a fresh zeal for his own glory. There were a few words about healing this morning that there may be someone here with a, with a, a, a issue on their left hand. Someone struggling with frequent abdominal pain. Someone with an ankle issue. We believe God wants to heal you of all those things. Any other physical issue you have, we love to pray for you. Well, the altars are officially open. We're going to worship just for a moment. I want to encourage you to come receive from the Lord this morning. We wait. jesus thank you jesus so this morning the altars are going to stay open the worship team is going to hang out for a minute please don't leave here without receiving ministry you're welcome to hang out and just worship for a while but if not you are officially dismissed we want you to know we love you we're so excited for all god's doing in our midst and please reach out if there's anything we can do to serve you this week we pray you have a wonderful week